One of the great questions that the church has pondered through the years is how does God accomplish his purposes in the world? How does God carry out what he wants to see happen in the world? How does God do that? The church has been uh, debating that for centuries, trying to figure out how God gets done what he wants to do. And we may say, well, that's something for theologians to discuss and we don't need to worry about it. But the reality is the answer to that question bears significantly on our lives. It has a bearing on how we think about politics. It has a bearing on how we think about our relationships. It has a bearing on how we think about the church. It has a bearing on how we think about God. It has a bearing on, on how we live our lives, how we interact with others. How does God accomplish his purposes in the world? How does God do what he wants to do? And I think there is an answer for us to that question in this passage of John chapter 12 that we just read a moment ago. As John begins this chapter, before we we started our reading, uh, Jesus has been with Mary, Martha, Lazarus, his good friends, and he has had some time with them. And then he enters into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday in the triumphal entry on the donkey. And the crowds are waving uh, at palm branches at him and shouting Hosanna. And the religious leaders are getting more and more agitated. In fact, they make the statement, everybody in the world is running after him. And uh, they are concerned. And it sets in motion the events of the last week of Jesus' life. According to the other gospel writers, Jesus uh, goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple of the money changers. And the next day, he is out teaching and we find out that there are some Greeks who have come to him and come to Philip and they want to talk to Jesus. We don't know anything about these people other than that they're Greeks, they're Gentiles. We wonder, we have no reason, no understanding why they choose Philip. He has a Greek-sounding name. Maybe they're from the area in Bethsaida where Philip is from. Maybe that's why John mentions that, but he doesn't tell us that. He simply says they come to Philip and they say, we'd like to talk to Jesus. And Philip goes to Andrew and says, what do we do? Should we let him talk to Jesus? Andrew says, okay, well, let's go ask Jesus. And they go ask Jesus and say, we've got some Greeks here who want to talk to you. I would expect Jesus to either say, sure, bring them over, or... Yeah, I don't really want to talk to them. But it seems as though he just ignores them completely and starts into this conversation, this dialogue about this teaching about a kernel of wheat falling to the ground and those who serve him and the darkness and light. And, and uh, then you hear a voice from God in heaven, from heaven. And eventually, uh, Jesus gets to begin, gets to talking about his crucifixion. And it's at that point that I think Jesus answers their question. When you get to verse 32, Jesus says, when the Son of Man is lifted up, I will draw all people to me. I think there's an underlying sense that these Greeks have come to Jesus and they, they come to Philip and Andrew. And Andrew and Philip don't know what to do with them. And the reason they don't come directly to Jesus is because I think they see themselves as second class people, especially among the religious community. We don't know if they're proselytes to the Jewish faith or if they're just interested in the Jewish faith, but they're here in Jerusalem for the Passover. And more than likely, even if they're proselytes to the Jewish faith, they're still considered second class because they are born Jews. And they're on the outskirts. 
If they're not, if they have not entered into the Jewish faith, then the only place they can go in the temple is the outer court. Which, and they may have been there when Jesus cleansed it, and they saw that, and that may have triggered this desire to see Jesus after watching him do that. And opening up this place of prayer for them again that had become a place of money changers. But whatever the reason, they come to Jesus, and, and they're asking to see him, and something in Jesus' reply says, that up till now, you have thought that, there are, that you are second-class citizens, when you think about religion and the Jewish faith and God. But I want to tell you, when I'm lifted up on the cross, that I want to show you that's not the case. Because at the cross, the ground is level. Jesus says the cross is for everyone. There is no one who, who, can, who is uninvited to the cross. Every single person, every single place is invited to the cross. The cross is for the whole world. John tells us earlier on that God so loved the whole world that he sent his son. And Jesus says, everyone will be drawn to me. Now, there's some people who have interpreted that to mean everyone will be drawn to him. Everyone will come to, everyone is welcomed in heaven. And when we get there, it doesn't matter what people do, who they are, anything, everybody will be there. I don't know if Jesus is saying that. But I think he is saying he would love for everyone to be there. Nothing would thrill him more than for every single person who has ever lived and ever will live to understand him, to open their hearts to him, and to experience eternal life with him. I think we agree with that here. We don't always agree with it here. There's something in our subconscious that believes, well, there are some people that shouldn't be there. There are some people who don't deserve that. There are some people who should remain out here. They're not as good. They're not as spiritual. They're not this or that or whatever the case may be. And quite frankly, there are people all over the world who feel that from the church. You're not born in the right place. You don't understand enough. You haven't done the right things. And Jesus is saying, everybody is welcome. You get the revelation and you find that people are there in every nation, tribe, language. Everyone is represented. Everyone is welcome. And the, the challenge for us is, is whether or not that will end up being the case, that everyone ends up receiving the eternal life from Jesus. The question is, do we want that to happen? I think that's what the cross is calling us to. A mindset that nothing would thrill us more than to see everyone come to faith. See everyone welcomed into the kingdom. However God chooses to do that. That's the purpose of God for this world. The purpose of God, the will of God is that none would perish. That all would come to faith. That all would experience his grace in their lives. But how does God accomplish that? Jesus simply says here, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to me. Not force them. Not coerce them. Not scare them to death. Draw them. What is it about the cross that draws people? 
think at the heart of it is an understanding that Jesus goes to the cross not because he's helpless and he can't, he can't do anything about it, but because it reveals his love for sinners. And of course, that includes you and me. I think sometimes we look at the cross and all we can see is our sin. But the cross is not about our sin. It's about God's love that does something about our sin. There's a song that we we sometimes sing, particularly during the season of Lent. I I like the song. In fact, I I, I have often uh, requested that we sing it. How deep the Father's love for us. I think we sang it last week in the service. And it's got a beautiful melody and has some great words, but there are a line or two in that song that we've actually changed. I don't know if you're allowed to do that, but we've done it. So we, it was one, song, one line that says, It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And I just don't think that's good theology. I, what we've changed it to, it was his love that held him there until it was accomplished. Because the primary point of the cross is not our sin, it's God's love. And that's why he can draw us to it. Because what nothing about our sin is going to draw us to the cross. What's going to draw us to the cross is that Christ loves us and wants to do something about our sin. And that's the point of the cross. It's about Christ. It's about his love for us, his willingness to go to the cross for us. It's not as if our sin was so bad that Jesus couldn't get off the cross because, even though he wanted to. It's because his love is so great, he doesn't want to. He's willing to go to the cross. And what we find is that the death of Jesus reveals the heart, the nature of who God is. This is who God is. Merciful, gracious, loving, compassionate. Is God almighty? Yes, that, that's the power that God has. But this is the heart of the nature of God. This is not something new. God didn't decide at some point in time to say, well, you know what, I, I, the, whole, the whole judgment wrath thing hasn't been worth it working, so let's try love. And I'll send Jesus. All throughout the Old Testament. I know sometimes it's hard to sift through some of the things that we read that are so cultural and contextual in the Old Testament. But what we find underlying all the Old Testament story is the love of God. We see it again and again and again. One of the, one of the, most, one of the most profound places of that is Hosea. Hosea says that Israel has rejected God again and they've turned from God and they've walked away from God. And God is as if God throws up his hands and says, that's it, I've had enough. I can't do this anymore. I, I, just, I just can't. You guys just go your own way. I'm done with you. Sounds like us, doesn't it? And in the very next breath, he says, but how can I give up on you? How could I ever give up on you? I love you. If you're a parent, you understand something of that. And no matter how much our children disappoint us or, or reject our advice or, or go away from what we would like for them to do. And if you're not a parent, you can remember when you as a child have done that. And loving parents, despite all those things, don't give up on their children. And Jesus says, if we who are evil, 
know how to do good things for our children, how much more our Father in heaven. This is who God is. This reveals the nature of the king and the kingdom. That God is merciful and self-giving. And even to the point of becoming helpless and vulnerable and looking foolish because he loves us. This is the heart of God. And it's because of God's love on the cross that he is able to then deal with evil. In verse 31, uh, God, the voice of uh, Jesus says, the time has, for judging this world has come when Satan, the rule of this world, will be cast out. And when I'm lifted up to the earth, I'll draw everyone to myself. One of the differences between Satan and God is that everything about the nature of Satan is to destroy. Everything he does is to bring about pain and destruction and death. And sometimes God allows pain, but it is always for the purpose of bringing us to something greater, some greater blessing. Because the end result of everything God does is good. It's life. And, and we see here that Jesus, when you think about the, the mess that our world is in, Satan looks at all of our mess and he laughs. He laughs at all the pain we endure, we're enduring because of our mess. God looks at our mess and steps into it in order to bring healing and grace and an answer for our mess. And Jesus says that it's on the cross that evil and the evil one is finally dealt with. You would think that you would overcome evil with power. You would think that you would overcome the cunning of the evil one with just being a little more cunning. I mean, that's how we, that's how we tend to deal with, with evil in this world. We think the way to deal with evil is to crush it, to be more powerful, to have bigger weapons, and God instead says, no, to deal with evil is to love. And he draws Satan, in a sense, into his trap. From the moment Jesus is conceived, Satan tries to kill him. Tries to end his life. You see it in Herod's edict about the children in Bethlehem. And throughout his life, you see instances where the crowd attempts to throw Jesus off a cliff or to stone him. To bring his life to an end. And ultimately when this week, this last week, begins to, to move toward Friday, you can almost sense the evil one getting more and more excited that his plans are becoming, are becoming realized. And death is imminent. And all of a sudden, he realizes he has been lured into God's trap. Because what does he say to Jesus in the garden? You don't want to do this. I realize now that I, I, God was letting me lead to this because that was a part of his plan. So now let's change it. Stop this. Peter tries to get him to stop it on the cross. They try to convince him to come down from the cross and to not stay there. I first began to think about that years ago when I heard a song by Michael Card. That this must be the lamb. And it starts out on a gray April morning as a chilling wind blew. 
thousand dark promises were about to come true. As Satan stood trembling, knowing now he had lost. As the lamb took his first steps on the way to the cross. God doesn't conquer evil by exerting his power. He conquers evil by going to a cross. Because what conquers evil is love. We don't always see that. It doesn't always look like it. But it's one of the key principles of the kingdom that love conquers evil. And we know it's true because Friday isn't the end. We know there's Sunday. We talked last week about, about the first part of 1 Corinthians and how Paul says that you know, it's foolishness. And that the, and this all looks like foolishness and that Paul says it's not. It's the wisdom of God. Why can he say that? Because he ends the letter to the Corinthians by talking about the resurrection. That's how we know. And God accomplishes his purposes not by exerting the power that he could easily exert. But by becoming vulnerable. Stepping into the mess. Letting evil overwhelm him. By being the very essence of love. And the call of the church is to trust, to believe that the way of the cross is indeed the way of life. That the way of love is the way to win. And that's going to have a great effect on how we view our influence on this world. Through the centuries, the church has believed that power is how you influence the world, how you change it, how you, how you become agents of God's purposes in the world. And other times, we have taken the tact of, let's see if we can scare people to death and, and, and bring them into the kingdom. If we just scare them enough, then they'll come running. And people came running. And when we forced them and when, when we, when we uh, coerced people and when we used power, people came in. But were they really in relationship with God? Because that's God's goal. That's God's purpose. It's not just that we say we have a whole bunch of people who are now in the kingdom, but that we have people who are, who are, whose hearts are open to God. Who want relationship with God. Who want to know the love of God in their hearts and in their lives. And the role of the church is to be agents. Not to exert power. But quite frankly. To be willing to go to a cross. To live our lives in such a way. That, that it doesn't seem surprising. That we might end up in some place that looks like a cross. That we are convinced, that we believe, that we trust God, that the way of the cross is the way of life. And like Jesus, we draw people into the kingdom. We don't force them. We don't coerce them. We don't frighten them. We draw them. We speak words of truth, but we do it in a way that draws people. We live lives of purity, but we do it in a way that draws people. We are around people. We, we make, build relationships with people. We care about people. 
but we draw them in the spirit of Christ's love that has drawn us. When you think about the, uh, the God, Jesus drawing people, it's, it sort of reminds me of a magnet. And a magnet, uh, when you think about how a magnet picks up things, it, it doesn't pick up things because it works harder or because it really strains itself to do this. It, it picks up things because it's a magnet. It's just doing what it is. And so I'm probably going to get in trouble for this, So, but that's all right. I'm going to dump some stuff here on the floor. If there are any scratches, it wasn't me. But you look at this. I mean, I barely have to touch that. And these things, just they, they just get attached. They grab hold of it. The magnet doesn't do anything. It just, except be what it is. And because it's what it is, things are attracted to it. Is everything attracted to it? No. But anything that is, has a, that is made of a material that's open to it will be attracted to it. And you and I are called, in essence, to be magnets. We are so open to Christ that through his spirit, the way we live, our attitudes, what we say, how we act, that we are so filled with the Spirit that actually we think like Jesus and we act like Jesus and we talk like Jesus and we live like Jesus. Because His Spirit lives in us. We're open to Him. We draw people to Him. And I'm convinced that God accomplishes His purposes in the world in a way that more resembles a magnet that sort of looks like a man hanging on a cross than a hammer that sort of looks like a man sitting on a throne. The question for us is, are we willing to embrace the cross? Not just for ourselves, but for how we become agents of God and his kingdom for others. Are we willing to trust and believe that the way of the cross is the way of life? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have drawn us to yourself. Give us grace to trust you, your plan your purpose, that we might draw others to you as well. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen.